Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Today was day 26 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings and I'm recording this video before the proceedings have quite uh, finished for the day. We're now at lunchtime. Staff Sergeant Bruce Briars has been uh, testifying. He's done his direct testimony already. He will be cross-examined uh, perhaps uh, this afternoon, we expect, uh, but uh, I had to go, so I'm recording this before that. So if anything happens in his cross-examination, I'll watch that later on and report back on that uh, tomorrow in, that, in my video tomorrow. But today, uh, much of the drama and much of the activity actually took place before the proceedings even began. There were two things that took place. First of all, there was a shift of location from the proceedings taking place in Halifax, where they'd gone from the Nova Center to the Prince George and then to uh, Dartmouth to a hotel there. And now today they're in Truro. Now Truro had been a location for uh, a viewing room, although I think that hasn't been used very much. Uh, to me, uh, this was really should have been taking place in Truro from the very beginning. When, uh, we were, when the Desmond Inquiry was sort of in its initiation phases, one of the things we fought for uh, very uh, strongly was to have it take place in Gaijbro, uh, in the community where things uh, took place, so family could attend, the community that had been affected uh, could attend, and there's also an effect of sort of allowing the community to process the trauma, the community trauma, uh, in a way that has some meaning when the proceedings are actually taking place there. Uh, it is further away from the main media sources in Nova Scotia and Halifax, but uh, certainly in the Desmond Inquiry case, the media were able to make their way to Gajbro, and many still came, and of course the live stream option is still there. I think the Mass Casualty Commission should have been in Truro. I mean, it's close to Portapique, it's close to, you know, all the locations around DeBert and other areas. It's the main center close by where uh, many of these tragic uh, deaths took place. And also, I think it's good to get people out of Halifax, whether it's the media, the lawyers involved, the commissioners themselves, everybody, I think it's good to get out of the city and get into the place. I think you get a better sense and a deeper appreciation of what took place when you're in the location, the physical location. And it's just so much easier for people in the area to attend rather than going to Halifax. I mean, when you're driving into Halifax, coming from rural Nova Scotia, people can find their way around. Yes, yeah, so that's all fine. And expenses can be paid, but you just have a sense of unease when you're in the city that uh, is, just makes it a little less comfortable to attend these sorts of things. So I um, thought that should have been the decision from the beginning. Uh, now it seems something like a token appearance, just some something to check off on the list of trauma-informed mandate factors that you may consider. Uh, so you know, there was no real uh, specific reason to do with the witnesses. Today we had uh, Staff Sergeant Briars, who didn't come on shift until 7 in the morning of the April 19th. Uh, he was not a, an incident commander. He was someone that was sort of in the background providing resources. And then tomorrow uh, we are going to hear from uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Carroll, who was the district commander for Colchester County, so certainly relevant to the place but he's not going to be in the place. He's going to be appearing by video over Zoom. So, uh, you know, there's no opportunity really for people to see him in person and have that experience. So uh, not quite clear. It seemed more of a logistical uh, convenience rather than a, a 
planned event to come to Truro at this time. So that was one thing that happened before things got started today. They're, they're in Truro. The second thing, and maybe I think more crucial and certainly more controversial, is this decision that the Commission released yesterday around accommodations. It's a seven-page decision uh, released uh, dealing with six requests that were made by RCMP officers through the National Police Federation and the Department of uh, Justice to have accommodations set for their testimony. And we only know three of the names. We haven't even heard the other three names. We know that Staff Sergeants Carroll, O'Brien, and Rahill are all receiving accommodations from the Mass Casualty Commission in the course of their testimony. So I'll get to that in a second. There were three other requests made, one which was rejected. Uh, it's not clear, clear what the accommodation requested was, but it was rejected, whatever it was. And then on the other two, there was a request which was met with agreement that they be able to testify as a panel. I guess we'll see when the pan panel comes up who those officers may have been, but uh, again, the names weren't uh, disclosed. The other, uh, now, in the introduction to this decision, it was interesting. Now, the commission sort of introduces the idea or, or presents the idea that witness testimony is just a tool like many other tools, uh, potential tools to gather information. Um, doesn't really seem to appreciate the, the importance of witness testimony, but anyway, that's fine. Uh, and then it uh, notes that the uh, commission lawyers are objective and they're, they're there to ensure that all issues are brought to the attention. I'm going to come back to that because I think uh, that was... Uh, it, they, they come back to that point at the end of their decision, and I think it's... Um, an effort by the commissioners to create a, a little space between them and the commission lawyers and perhaps deflect some of the blame and criticism that's been received uh, by the commission as a whole and sort of f focus that on the commission council rather than the commissioners themselves who of course get to write and release the decision. So first the decision itself, the result is that uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Al Carroll is going to testify tomorrow uh, by video. He's not going to be there in person. And there will be cross-examination or the version of cross-examination that we've seen so far. The other two, Staff Sergeants O'Brien and Rahill, are going to be questioned by video, by recorded video. And with nobody, uh, people can watch, the commissioners, sorry, can watch, and the lawyers for the parties can watch but their videos have to be turned off so they can't be on screen they can't say anything they'll have no opportunity to ask questions and the video itself it's not clear it'll be either played or simply maybe posted at a later time the questioning that's supposed to take place may 30th and 31st and participants are able to submit questions by tomorrow at 4 p.m so the participants can submit questions the witnesses will then have four days to prepare for them. They'll be asked questions only by commission counsel and have every easy opportunity to answer the questions from which, which they are prepared to answer. We won't get to see anything of their demeanor in cross-examination. You may have noticed sometimes the office police officers uh, are used to testifying, of course. They'll testify in direct examination and they'll give longer answers, and they'll be animated, and then all of a sudden they'll switch to cross-examination, and you'll see them kind of close up. Shorter answers, you know, not uh, 
not wanting to be there. Anyway, so we're not going to see that out of uh, Staff Sergeants O'Brien and Rayhill. I think it's a real problem, and I'm not the only one that thinks that because uh, Patterson Law, who represents most of the families this morning, released a statement saying that they are not going to be attending. They're not attending today. They're not going to be attending tomorrow, and they won't be attending those two days next week when uh, those interviews are taking place. Uh, so what they say in their statement is a very fair, I think. I, I read the statement. I think it's uh, their, their right to be outraged by this. They say they are disheartened and further traumatized by this. So take that now. This is not the first time, but the commission who is trying to be concerned with being trauma-informed and concerned about trauma are in effect traumatizing the families and the you know some of the the victims um, more so by the procedures that they've chosen you know in in an attempt to reduce trauma for uh, witnesses who are used to testifying in this in this way so they will yeah not be associated with this restricted fact-finding process for such critical evidence and it is critical evidence uh, o'brien and rayhill were central to the decision-making process and for them not to be um, not to be cross-examined, not to have the opportunity for cross-examination is, is is kind of absurd. It'd be comically absurd if this wasn't such a serious situation. So this morning, when uh, the commission started, now this all happened before proceedings started, I expected some sort of reaction from the commissioners when they did their introduction. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say I expected it because they don't seem to react to anything publicly. They seem to hope that anything that happens outside of the commission proceedings itself is simply ignored by the public. Uh, that seems to be the approach. Anyway, they didn't say anything. They didn't say anything about the boycott, the fact that the lawyers weren't there, the fact that there they are in the backyard of everything that took place in Truro and it was nearly an empty room because the participants weren't there, the families weren't there. They said nothing. Uh, commission counsel Anne Mancini, who again I thought did a, a fine job with her examination, uh, mentioned nothing as well. So coming back just a second to the decision itself, the last page of the decision uh, they talk about, the commissioners, that is, who write the decision, talked about the role of the commission lawyers. And we've heard this before. I talked about this when I was talking about the interim report, that they're somewhat akin to pro prosecutors where they're supposed to be seeking justice, putting the information before the court or before the commissioners in this case, and allowing the commissioners to make decisions. So what the commissioners say here is, and I'm going to quote this, they say, we rely on commission counsel to examine the masses of document disclosure, interview witnesses, and present the evidence in a fair and impartial manner to serve the public interest. In serving the public interest, commission counsel are instructed to engage in an objective and tenacious pursuit of the truth. Okay, what does that mean? Well, to me, this means, this is the commissioner saying, don't blame us. We're only able to deal with the information that's provided to us. If you didn't like the accommodation decision, well, that was what commission council recommended and the information they provided to us. If you don't like the level of detail that's coming out in the proceedings, that's commission council. They're providing it. We've told them to be tenacious. We've told them to act in the public interest. So any criticism that you level at the commission should be directed at commission council. That seems to be the subtle message that the commissioners are giving by phrasing things in that way. 
However, if you look back again to the interim report, they talked, the commissioners that is, talked about how this is an inquisitorial process that they are directing. So what is it? Is it they, are they directing this or are they simply receiving the information from commission council who they've instructed to be tenacious? So, uh, that's a, for any of, any one of us to judge, um, seems like they can't have it both ways. All right. So, uh, to talk a little bit about the testimony today was Staff Sergeant Bruce Briers, who was the risk manager who took over from Staff Sergeant uh, Brian Rahill, 7 in the morning on April 19th, 2020. He wasn't in charge. That was the critical incident commander who had command and was directing people in different uh, tasks and all that sort of thing. Uh, Staff Sergeant Briers was there in support to ensure that resources were available. He was receiving lots of information. He said it was like drinking out of a fire hose. He received a photo of the replica car, which he distributed, and he was uh, also responsible for communicating with various police agencies, Halifax Regional, Truro, uh, New Glasgow, etc. And uh, so he talked about that. He talked about, um, oh, he sent the photo of the car out to the other police agencies, as well as the people at the border, Cobblequid Pass, and Department of Natural Resources. He was asked about public communication because at one point he had received an idea through the dispatch and this idea had originated from uh, Constable Heidi Stevenson. Actually, when that fact was brought up, which I know Staff Sergeant Briars knew before that, but uh, I guess reflecting on it in the course of his answers, he got quite emotional uh, about that, um, which shows that people can testify about emotional things and they can get emotional and everybody sees it and appreciates that and moves on and and he was able to move on and answer further questions so again what are we thinking of here uh he mentioned that it wasn't his decision to issue public communications that he passed on the information he tried to call staff sergeant mccadam or certain mccollum then contacted staff sergeant carroll to pass that on staff sergeant carroll emailed him back not long afterwards to say that a decision had been made not to issue a public release uh, in terms of recommendations, uh, Staff Sergeant Briars recommends what they are doing now or what the, the process in place now is to have a second risk manager in place just because there's so much information and a lot of tasks to assign. And, of course, if you have one major incident, it doesn't mean that the rest of the province just goes quiet. And so to have a second risk manager on hand to deal with other incidents in other parts of the province uh, would be helpful. So... Quite a, quite a morning. Uh, our first boycott, I know the families have been upset about how things were going. I wasn't surprised that they would eventually take some action like this. Hopefully it'll be effective. You know, when I, I say it's not an unreasonable thing to do, you know, we heard from the National Police Federation who early on asked for all of these accommodations and for witnesses not to have to testify. And then we've had an opportunity to actually see those witnesses testify and we can all observe that they seemed fine. They seemed to be able to testify, to remember and be able to convey information without uh, any obvious trauma to themselves. We haven't heard anything after the fact to say, hey, that decision was a big mistake because now this person is in the hospital or anything of that nature. So when they come now and ask for accommodations and exceptions to be made for staff sergeants 
who were not at any of these scenes, who did not experience or witness any violence, uh, then it's a little hard to take. And I can understand the families being very frustrated by that. And I'm sure the public is as well. All right, so uh, that's it for today. Like I said, if uh, anything major occurs with the cross-examination of Staff Sergeant Briars, I'll try to bring that to your attention either through Twitter later on or else uh, in my video tomorrow I'll, I'll raise it up. And tomorrow we will have uh, proceedings. It'll be Staff Sergeant uh, Alan Carroll, who's testifying by video, as I mentioned. Final thing I'll mention, uh, a lot of people, uh, if they're looking at the background of the video, the thing I get the most comments on is the Bob Dylan book. And uh, yesterday was Bob Dylan's birthday, so I mentioned that. Uh, the great man was turned 81 yesterday, still going strong. Released an album uh, this year, a really good one. And um, anyway, I sometimes wonder, Bob Dylan, he wrote a lot about injustice, sung about, you know, whether it was the hurricane or the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll about injustice and I'm sure he'd come up with something special for this incident if it ever crossed his mind so anyway just thought I'd mention that and otherwise um, that's it for today uh, post the video and uh, keep an eye on things and otherwise we will see you next time